This is episode 156 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. This episode is from our most recent event, the 2022 Annual Enrichment Conference with Jeremy Meeks. This is session one from Monday night, titled Rejoicing in Heaven. Yes, James said, Sergio Aguirre, uh, Director of Intercultural Ministries, and I do have the privilege of uh, inviting Jeremy to come up to the stage, and as he makes his way up, here's just a little bit about him. Jeremy is a director of the Chicago course on preaching. He also serves as a lead instructor there. Prior to taking on this role, Jeremy was a pastor of Hope Community Church in West Nashville, Tennessee. Previously, he served as a church planting missionary in Nicaragua. He earned his bachelor's degrees from Liberty University, an MA in bioethics from Trinity Graduate School, and is currently working on his PhD from theological ethics from Trinity College Bistro. In addition to his pastoral duties at the church, Jeremy was a director of the Spanish language initiatives for the Charles Simeon Trust. And we actually had the privilege, uh, our Hispanic churches here in the Northwest, to have Jeremy come down and lead a workshop on expositional preaching, which was wonderful. Uh, other details about Jeremy, his wife's name is Majori. Uh, Alexis is his daughter's name and Jake is his son's name. Some of his favorite hobbies are home brewing cooking, and backpacking. You sound like a Northwest guy. You're in the wrong place. And some of his uh, favorite things to do um, is research, and specifically sex bot research. So if you have any questions about sex and robots and AI, you can talk to him after this. If you want to do any further research on Jeremy, if you Google Jeremy Meeks, uh, I encourage you to you work a little bit harder at that because if you Google that, you're going to find an American fashion model, a member or used to be a member of the Crips and, and yeah, the Crips Street Gang. So, yeah, both of them. So make sure you put Pastor Jeremy Meeks and you'll find him. <laughs> Without further ado, Jeremy, would you come forward? thing on this thing on it says it's on it's on now no yes I'm not doing anything there you go just turn me up I don't know how about now how about now I don't actually even need this thing here we go now we're ready now we're cooking with gas yes I am uh I am a former member of the Crips. I am still a fashion model. No, I will not sign autographs. It's a joy to be with you. I know you're supposed to say that when you come to these things, but it is. Uh, I've been praying for you for the last nine months, having been invited to talk to you about one of your values, the value this year being biblically focused. I will freely admit from the beginning that this is the potentially least cool of the four values. Gospel-driven, disciple-making, relationally committed, but biblically focused? I know you're all excited to be in the room again together, at least most of you. It's good to see all of you. I, we won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you were considering not coming this year. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Biblically focused. Let's go. Let's get on to something else. It's easy to move past this one. But I want to make a bold claim on the basis of what you just heard from James. I think if we lose this one, if you lose this one, you lose everything. I want us, over the next few days, to fall in love with the Bible again. And your ministry leaders, you're supposed to love the Bible. But like all the things that we love, our love of the Bible fluctuates. But you and I will never be focused on anything that we don't love. So my hope is that you and I will be in God's Word and love God's Word more for our own sakes, for the sake of the church, and for the sake of the world. That's actually the three talks I'm giving. Today I'll be talking about the Bible and ourselves. I cannot take credit for this. This is all James' idea. He, his idea was, hey, let's talk about the Bible and ourselves, and then what about the relationship between the Bible and the, and the church, and then the Bible and the world? And that's what we're going to do. But as we do it, I want you and I to engage in something that uh, one Bible scholar calls playful obedience. Both of those words are very, very important. Playful in the sense of really getting into the weirdness of the Bible. And as we're going to see over the next few days, the Bible, if you didn't know, is a weird book. The question is, are we going to be obedient to the thing that we say we believe in? Sometimes that's easier than others. So, would you open your Bibles with me to Psalm 19? I'm a preacher. It's the only thing I know how to do. And if you're just sitting here and you go, what's the whole thing with the sex robots? <laughs> it's not a joke. But, you know, any good preacher who's preaching multiple sermons always has to save the best for last. I promise you, I will be talking about sex robots from here, from the Bible, tomorrow evening. So stick around. I'm going to read this, Psalm 19, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. I'll be reading from the ESV. This is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. 
sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, give us through your word this evening. Amen. I want to title the sermon tonight, Rejoicing in Revelation. Rejoicing in Revelation. I think that if I had to sum up what it means for our relationship with God's Word, we ought to be rejoicing in Revelation. This, this beautiful, well-known psalm breaks into three parts. That we'll be working through today. There's the goodness of the universe, the greatness of the Word, and landing on the gift of revelation. And I want to tell you from the very beginning what I want to persuade you of in the time that I have with you tonight. Here it is. God's self-revelation should lead to our rejoicing. Now, I'll be honest. You're probably like, yeah, I already know that. The question is, do you do it? Isn't it weird how ministry leaders are like six-year-olds? I know I'm not supposed to hit my brother, I just do. I know I'm supposed to share, I just don't. I think it's true for ministry leaders. I know I'm supposed to rejoice in God's word. I just, you know, sometimes... I think that's what this psalm is telling us we should be doing, and I hope that we leave here doing that, having understood why we should. The psalm moves in a wonderful way from the universal down to the individual, from all of the universe to me, from all of the stars to you. It shouts all of what God has made and given. All of it screams in our ears about who God is in order that you and I might respond appropriately by rejoicing. It begins in verses 1 through 6 by talking about the goodness of the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. In other words... All of the universe is always preaching. Let me just give you a few examples. 
Before I give you these examples, I need to tell you that while I have many hobbies, many of which are strange, I am not an astronomer. I know I look like one, just like I look like a fashion model, but it's not true. But here's what apparently is going on. On Mars, there is a volcano. It has a name, the Olympus Mons. It is 374 miles wide, which you go, how big is that? It's the state of Arizona. It is 16 miles high. That's three times taller than Mount Everest. That just is out there in the world. Not only that, but there's this thing that we call Planet Nine. I'm not making this up. And you go, you're dumb, that's called Pluto. Wrong, that's a dwarf planet, it doesn't count anymore. <laughs> planet Nine is a planet that is possibly hiding behind Neptune that we might discover in the next 10 years. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> is it there or is it not there? Is it just some academics trying to get grant funding? I don't know. Here's what it also could be. It could be a black hole, a small one. If black holes exist, which some astronomers think does, and other ones are like, I'm not so sure. I don't even know what a black hole is. It's just out there. I bring all of this up to remind you of one thing. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When was the last time you just went outside and just tripped out at the world that you live in? I believe that we would be better human beings and better Christians if we just spent more time outdoors. But not doing things and not listening to podcasts, just being weirded out by what is going on. I would ask you to leave here and go look at the stars, but, you know, this is Oregon and this is March by the seaside, so you're not going to see Jack over the next few days. <laughs> but it's pretty amazing to just be like, I don't even know what all that is. There are two things that happen at the same time in every moment in creation. God is given glory, and you and I are given knowledge. That's what this is telling us. And it might be here that we ask, okay, well, if all of creation can't stop talking about who God is, then why isn't everybody a Christian? It's a good question. Let me be clear, the problem is not in creation. The problem is in me, and the problem is in you. We don't see God because we want to be him. And by the way, I'm not when I say we, I'm not talking about those heathens out there. I'm talking about you people and me people. It's the story of human sin, our communal rebellion against God. It's hard to see God when all we can see is ourselves. As a result of what we would typically call the fall, we often take the knowledge that we receive from the world around us and use it in both great and terrible ways. It's what we would classically call 
general revelation. We take all of what we see and we use it both for good things and for not so good things. Let me just give you one example that for some of you is the first time you've ever thought about this, nuclear technology. Now those of us who are like my age and older grew up with the threat of nuclear war Every day of our lives. I did desk drills when I was small. And now all of a sudden, everybody's like, wait, what are these nuclear weapon things? I don't remember the stats. We could, like, if we released them all, we could, like, bomb the world out of existence, like, 300 and some times. It doesn't matter. You only got to do it once. It's bad enough. You know what else we can do with nuclear technology? Cure cancer. And we should thank God for that. But the fact that we do both demonstrates that we take what we learn from creation and use it in complicated ways. The language of creation is poetically described here, particularly in verses 3 and 4, as having no voice and yet being unavoidable at the same time. It goes out to all people everywhere always saying the same thing. This is the cool part about the world in which we live. You don't have to translate it. It just is. Augustine, my hero, has a great take on this when he says, there is a certain great book, the very sight of creation. Gaze above and below. Consider, read, God did not make letters from ink from which you might understand him. He placed before your eyes the very things he made. What are you seeking? A louder voice? Heaven and earth proclaim, God made me. I just want to write one paragraph that's that's like that cool once. I never will. Creation knows to do only one thing, which is proclaim the glory of God. I guess one of the things that you and I should take away from that is you you should aspire to be as persuasive as the stars and the mountains and fruit flies and everything else in all of creation. It's doing just fine. We've just got to be like it. You know, there's no avoiding the reality of God, no matter how hard we try. It's why we are, and I will continue to bring this up over the next few times that I'm before you, we are incurably spiritual and incurably religious as humans. Because we can't not do anything with what's out there. We treat it the wrong ways, we abuse it, we we deify it, we do all kinds of crazy stuff with it, but we can't just do nothing with it. I wonder, this is an ironic question to ask ministry leaders, but I wonder, are you trying to avoid the reality of God tonight? And if you are, how's it going for you? 
You can't escape it. Most days, uh, I am a Christian not because I want to be, but because I can't not be. And one of the reasons is because I just walk around and go, I don't know what all this is, but I don't have any better answers. Creation is amazing, but it's always asking us, do you live as if God exists? Because he's always there, and his work is always preaching. God is revealing himself. The question is, are we picking up on it? The psalmist decides to focus in on how all of this works by going from all of the stars to just one of the stars, the sun. And it's hilarious. Like, you got to just enjoy it when the Bible is weird. How is the sun described in this passage? Look at it, verses 4 to 6. It's personified as a bridegroom leaving his chamber, or strangely as like a strong man running. I, I'll be honest, I've never looked at the sun. I know you're not supposed to do that. I, I grew up poor. But, like, I've never seen the sun have been like, yeah, that looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger on a jog. <laughs> but it's kind of cool to think of it that way. It just keeps going and going and going around and around it goes. But the funny thing is that the sun, for many ancient Near East religions, was almost universally accepted as a powerful deity. Duh, look at it, you can't. Without it, we got nothing. With it, we've got everything. Of course you'd worship it. And what the psalmist does here is celebrate it and de-god it at the same time. The psalmist is saying that while the sun is great, it isn't anything compared to the one who made the tent. I like the sun just fine, but it's only a tiny star in a massive galaxy. More than that, the sun is just a foretaste of what is to come. Let me remind you of how the Bible ends. Revelation 21, 22 through 25, And I saw no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Friends, every time you look at the sun, remember this, when you feel its heat, or when you see its effects in the world, think this is just a foretaste of the day when that sun will not exist because the Lamb will be all the light that we need. I don't know what it's going to be like when we get up there, but it'll be cooler than this. Let me confess in public what I think many of us think in private. hard to believe in God, <laughs> especially for those of us in ministry. 
seeing who God is should lead us to see who we are. God's self-revelation should lead to our rejoicing and God's self-revelation in His creation is abundant and evident, but still we have the doubts, don't we? Our people do too. I love the stars, but meditating on the Milky Way will only get me so far. Thank God he didn't just give us the universe. He also gave us his word. And this is where the whole psalm shifts. It moves from the goodness of the universe to the greatness of the word. In verses 7 through 11. This is what we call special revelation. That's just for free. You're just getting like systematics here, and it's just totally free. General revelation, special revelation. What the heck is that? Everything and the Bible. That's all. It's not that hard. You have to work real hard at making theology boring. Somehow we figured out how to do it. Uh-huh. While general revelation is good, special revelation is great. Why? This psalm tells us. First, because of what special revelation is. What is it? Law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, and rules. And let me be perfectly honest with you, that does not sound great. You go, no, I want like Jesus, puppies, and rainbows. That's great. Law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, rules. That's great. Well, just stick with me for a second. Because we're not just told what special revelation is. We we're told who special revelation is from. It's the only thing that doesn't change in verses 7 through 11. You know what it is? Six times, you can't miss it. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Then there's the Lord. Fifthly, which you should never say in a sermon, the Lord. And lastly, the Lord. The reason why all those things are great is because of who they're from. And this is like the big Lord name. This is the Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on where you come from. None of us know how to pronounce it, so don't worry about it. That name, that's the name of the one who gives us all of this, the name that God gave to his people beginning in Exodus, telling them, this is who I am. It's God's self-revelation to his people. See, the fullness of God, who God is to us, can never come from anything other than his own self-declaration of who he is through this crazy book we call the Bible. Friends, the reason why you should be biblically focused is not because it's the right thing to do or because it's our tradition, but only for this reason is it because where God himself tells you and I and the rest of the world who he is. And if there's any other reason that you guard the Bible, then this book becomes a cult artifact and nothing more. It's great because it tells us about who God is. 
We have what special revelation is, who special revelation is from. And this section also tells us about special revelation's characteristics. Here it is. Perfect. Sure. Right. Pure. Clean. True. Righteous. I just wonder, is that the way that you speak personally about the law, the testimony, the precept, the commandment, the fear, and the rules? That's what the Bible does. I want to be real clear. If you're going to embrace the Bible, you've got to embrace all of it. And tomorrow morning, I'm just going to give you a slight preview to get up in the morning and come back and listen to this guy. We are going to deal with one of the craziest, upside-down, backwards, and almost shameful texts in the Bible. You have to embrace all of it, friend. All of it, according to this book, tells us who God is. There's two ways to sum up what its characteristics are. The first one is it's a reflection of God's own character, right? Who is God? Well, he is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous. This makes sense of the fact that the Bible is God's revelation of himself. We expect that who he reveals himself to be is who he actually is. With God, what we read is what we get. Not only is it a revelation of himself, but also the beautiful thing about this list is it contradicts most of human speech. I'll read it again. Here's what this list is. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous. That doesn't describe your last sermon on your best day. And mine neither. It contradicts most of human speech. We all wish others spoke to us in these kinds of ways, right? Believer and unbeliever alike. What a blessing it is that God speaks to us in ways that we long to be spoken to by others. That wasn't enough. We have what special revelation is, who special revelation is from, special revelation's characteristics, and fourthly, what special revelation does. Reviving, making wise, rejoicing, enlightening, enduring. Why should we cherish God's word? Because it is the means by which you and I are given what we most long for. God's word is what gives us a specific place in creation. It tells us who we are, who we serve, and how we ought to live. That might sound restrictive, but friends, I want to proclaim to you that that is absolute freedom. John Paul Sartre, a famous French existentialist philosopher who I began reading at 14 in order to convince myself that it was okay to kill myself, has this to say about freedom. Humans are condemned to be free. This means that 
No limits on my freedom can be found except freedom itself. Or if you prefer, that we are not free to cease being free. The unbearable burden of freedom. You see, the freedom to create our own place in the world is empty and condemning. It's, it's the reason why so many people, maybe in this room, definitely in our churches, and no question in our world, why so many people struggle with the anxiety of the lives that they live because they're told you have to be free to be free. And everybody goes, that sounds good, except what am I supposed to do in the world? And we go, be free, and you go, that's not helpful. God's word comes along and goes, well, here's who you are. Here's who God is. Here's what all this is. Here's how you ought to live. It contains all that we need. So how should we respond to the goodness of the universe and the greatness of the word? It's a good question, and we don't have to answer it ourselves. The Bible's going to do it for us. Closes in verses 12 through 14 about the gift of revelation. In short, the gift of God's revelation to us is that it leads us to two things, repentance and rejoicing. And that, friends... It is a gift. The psalmist's specific image of the goodness of creation was the sun, and one of the reasons was because its rays touch everything. Having reflected on the glory of God's word, the psalmist knows that something similar is true about the word. God's word is like the rays of the sun. It penetrates every part of our lives. The psalmist's opening question is thus rhetorical. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Only the fool goes, oh me, that's me. You see, when you see the goodness of creation, and the greatness of the word, you're left asking the question, what am I supposed to do in light of all of this? I should treasure God's word. No one can discern all their errors. We're guilty of two kinds of offenses according to this psalm, hidden faults and presumptuous sins. Again, not those people, but us people. And these are problematic. Why? Well, because they're hidden and they're presumptuous. We don't even think about them. See, one of the benefits of God's word is it tells you, here's what creation is, here's who God is, and yeah, 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 you're actually wrong. You don't just feel wrong, and you just need to get over it. You don't just get to say other people are wrong, so then you can just will to power and dominate over them. 
crazy thing is, is that we're all full of these hidden faults and presumptuous sins, and the writer recognizes that you and I need forgiveness from both of them. And friends, do not be fooled. Even the smallest and most hidden of sins can have dominion over you. I wonder what it is you're hiding today. What you're presuming isn't a problem today. What you are assuming that the people in your church will never find out about today. Know this, whatever that thing is, the very first thing that comes to your mind, this is God's moment of God's grace to you because you know exactly what you need to repent from. There's no question. You don't have to go on a long prayer walk and a retreat and write out your dreams. You just have to repent of that thing. It's as simple as that. Here's the question. Are you actually going to do it? Too many of us go, yeah, 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 in the morning. Know this. You can keep it from us. Maybe. You might be able to keep it from your church. You can't keep it from God. We particularly need to hear this as ministry leaders. Here's the great irony. We're so busy ministering the word to other people that we don't let the word do the work in our own lives. I used we very intentionally. You've had to sit with this sermon for 34 minutes. I've had to sit with it for months. Now let me tell you that it has been incredibly convicting. You have to stand before people and tell them this about God's word, and you can't do that unless you are so deceived you're definitely going to hell without thinking, well, what, a, what about me? I'll tell you, like I, th this is a huge, I don't know if this is blessing you, but the last few months have been a huge blessing to me because I have caught myself going, how dare you say that in front of other people because of X? And you go, yeah, that's right. Drawn to repentance and faith. I've seen my need for forgiveness in new ways because hidden faults and presumptuous sins are lying around every corner of my life and your life. Our only hope is in the exposing nature of God's word. One of the greatest things about God's word is that it doesn't just show us how wrong we are. It doesn't just tell us that we need forgiveness. It also tells us how we get it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what a disastrously terrible, ridiculous book this would be if it says, God is real, look at the stars, by the way, here's who he is. You're wrong. Have a nice day. Or even, so get right with me and figure out how to do that. You know what we would do? You don't have to guess. Just read the book of Jeremiah. You'd start burning your babies. It's a despicable practice. You go, that's not in there. Yeah, it is. Good luck. Read that. It's a great bedtime story. But you know what it is? It's sincere worship. It's more sincere than probably anything you've ever done in your life. It's what you and I would do if God just said, 
figure it out, get right with me somehow. It's interesting that what God tells the people to whom Jeremiah was speaking is, I didn't ask for that and it never even came to my mind. I already told you what I'm asking for. Yes, forgiveness is something that the author here realizes is necessary for him because the penetrating nature of God's word has gone into his heart, his soul, his mind, and he has realized, oh no, I'm in big trouble. I need forgiveness. The author knows the Bible. He knows that forgiveness doesn't come by magic. You and I can never try hard enough to just figure out what it is. Now, forgiveness comes in a very specific way. God graciously gives us details, details about how you and I can be made right with God. You're wondering what all that weird stuff in Leviticus is all about? Yeah. Details about how you and I can get right with God. Here's, here's how I can sum it up. Forgiveness from God comes through God's means in God's place in God's presence. That's what it is. God's means in God's place in God's presence. In other words, what the part on this side of Psalm 19 would tell us is it comes through sacrifices in the temple near and at the Ark of the Covenant. Forgiveness has never been magic. It's not magic for you and I either. In fact, it's exactly the same on a broad level. It is God's means and God's place and God's presence. What, what, do you, what do you mean? Well, it's God's means. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. Jesus had no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for this, those of the people, since he did this once for all by offering up himself. It's God's means. It's not only God's means, but it's also God's means in God's place. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is God's means in God's place, in God's very presence. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I mean, just you can trip out on that verse for like the next 20 years. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God's means and God's place and God's presence. Friends, in Jesus, you and I have all the forgiveness from God that we will ever need. How should I respond to God's revelation of himself and understanding that I have the forgiveness that I have always needed. Simple. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A, a simple petition. Oh, Lord, I want to be right on the inside and on the outside. And since I'm speaking to ministry leaders, let me tell you that you can have the right words, but if you don't have the right heart, then you are in one of the most perilous 
positions in all of God's creation. Richard Baxter and his Reformed pastor talks on and on and on about how terrible would it be to lead people to heaven and end up going to hell. You can't fool God. But this petition of the psalmist is also a word of rejoicing. Remember, he has proclaimed that all of creation is proclaiming the glory of God. And the psalmist ends this thing by just joining his voices with the stars. The one we rejoice in is not just the God who created everything. He is also the close God, rock, and the redeemer. And friends, you and I know that more than the psalmist ever did because you and I know Jesus. What a rock. And what a redeemer. Friends, God's self-revelation should lead to our rejoicing. So may we always be focused on God's world and God's word to help others do the same. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you have given to us. And before we think about how to minister God's word to our churches and how to bring God's word to bear in our world, we pray that you would do business in our own hearts. That you would remind us once again, persuade us one more time. We need to be focused on the Bible before we focus on it for the sake of other people. Would you lead us to repentance and rejoicing just like the psalmist, not just tonight, but every day of our lives. We pray this in the name of our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.